Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So Vic, do you think you might have ADHD? Well, listeners keep emailing me telling me that they think I do, so probably. Mind you, listeners also email us saying we talk too much about your mum's feet. So what do they know? Yeah, fair enough. I honestly had no idea about the connection between overdrinking and ADHD until we started this podcast. About 40% of people that have had any sort of drinking issues also apparently have ADHD. Whenever we chat to ex-drinkers, this comes up more than you'd believe. If you have ADHD or suspect you might, or just want to learn about this link, then we would encourage you to check out the I Have ADHD podcast. It's the place where adults with ADHD find research-based information, validation and tons of support. This is the best way to feel less alone and hear some of the answers to the questions you've been sitting with for too long. You'll hear detailed descriptions of what it means to have ADHD and enjoy interviews with the foremost experts in the industry so that you don't have to read those ADHD books that are collecting dust on your shelf. Yeah. Listen to the I Have ADHD podcast and learn how ADHD affects every aspect of your life. From the boardroom to the bedroom. In the podcast, you'll also hear about their ADHD coaching program, which is called Focused. Focused is made up of three pillars, courses, coaching and community. It is designed to help you build your own self-improvement program and is perfect for the ADHD brain. And you can get $50 off the course just by using the code SOBER, S-O-B-E-R. So if you're tired of feeling stuck and don't know where to start, listen to the I Have ADHD podcast. The kettle's boiled, Vic. Great. Perfect timing. Just a dash of milk for me, please, mate. Here you go. Shall we get started, then? Have you ever woken up on a Sunday morning and said, I'm never drinking again, and then found yourself waving 50 bucks at a barman by happy hour? Are you wondering why everyone else can stop at one, while you head to a dodgy after-party with a weird bloke called Disco Dave? If so, it might be time to take a deeper look at your relationship with your reliable social crutch, alcohol. On each episode, we'll investigate our own dysfunctional dealings with booze and find out if it's possible to stop this deeply ingrained habit before things get too messy. Yep, we're going to open up a shame shed of humiliating drinking stories to help you understand why waking up from a booze coma each weekend with a kebab sticking out of your top pocket might actually be negatively impacting your health. Hamish and I are here to delve into what it's like being sober, an unwanted warts and all look into why giving up those cheeky pints or putting down those mummy wines will make you feel happier, help your anxiety and mental health and turn you into the most sparkly authentic version of you. Won't that mean I become boring though, Vic? Well, Hamish, we'll just have to wait and see. I'm Victoria Vanstone. I'm Hamish Adams-Cairns. And this is Sober Awkward. Today's episode, Vic, is a bit different to usual. This is the first episode we've ever done where you don't have the script. We don't have any structure whatsoever. I'm hoping you might have some. I've got structure. I've done a lot of work for this. I hope there's some structure. Weirdly, this is actually the second time I've ever interviewed you. 
And the first time I interviewed you was one of our first ever conversations. It was actually. Which I don't think most people can say. No, you came around my house, didn't you, and I interviewed did. me? Yeah. I'm, I was going to re-listen to that in preparation for today, but I thought no, because I'll just ask you the same questions. Those were the days when I was still not a pro like I am now, Hamish. That's it. I was That's... just talking a load of old rubbish then. <laughs> I also think it's hard to write this episode because there are a million questions I want to ask. But at the same time, I don't want to give away too much about the book because I want people to buy the book. So I had to find the sweet spot. The way I want to structure it is I want to look at your writing more broadly to start with. Interesting. And then we'll look into some of the specific themes and passages from the book itself. Oh, I like a back passage, Hamish. I know. Are you ready? Yes. Are you ready for me to enter your back passage? Not really. I'm ready for you to enter my my book passage. (laughs) Okay. So obvious place to start is with how does it feel there's actually out there available to buy today? Because I feel like there's different stages of excitement with this. Yeah. It must have been like the day you started writing it and the day you got a publisher and then the day that you held the physical copy or the day you submitted the final draft. How does it feel that there will be people out there that you've never met picking it off a bookshelf and taking it home? I find it very, very odd because when you're writing something, you never truly believe that anyone's ever going to read it, which is why that book is so brutally honest, because it was just me sharing my life with myself. So I felt like I could say whatever I wanted. I never, ever considered when I was writing it that another person on this planet would ever, ever read my words. So it's really, really hard Mm. to get excited about something because it feels very brutal, my book, and it feels like it's my heart on a page and I'm literally handing over my life you know, fuck-uppery and all, all of the bad and terrible things that I've done under the influence of alcohol, they're all going to be out there. It's lucky that we do this podcast, I must say, because I feel like those that know me know all all of these stories to some extent already. People know the stuff that I got up to. So... That aspect of it is okay. I think if someone was coming into this cold, they'd never heard of me, never listened to the podcast and read that book, they might be like, oh my God, that girl is a maniac. (laughs) So I'm trying to kind of deal with the negative side, which I'm sure there's going to be, by having therapy every week. (laughs) Yes. Well, we are going to get into that later on, fair enough. Yes. So... You began writing the day that you went sober and that turned into your blog, Drunk Mummy, Sober Mummy, and then from that came the podcast. One of the things you talk about a lot in the book is kind of a lack of confidence that you have, a lack of confidence that you can make friends sober or still be the life and soul of the party or feel sexy, sort of confidence in all these different aspects of your life. True. What gave you the confidence to write a book? Was there part of you that thought this could get published someday? Or why were you writing it if you never thought anyone was going to read it? I felt like the only person that had ever, ever stopped drinking before being on like a kidney dialysis machine Mm. or being that person in the park that we often talk about with the bottle of Jack Daniels clutched to their chest like a real alcoholic, like you imagine what a real alcoholic was. And I wasn't that. And I felt so alone early on when I first decided to give up drinking after the therapy, once it was done and I thought, right, this is going to be it forever, I thought, gosh, am I the only person that has ever done this? Mm. Because there wasn't anything online. There wasn't this sober, curious scene. There wasn't anything out there for this mid-range binge drinker. Although I do use that term a lot. Most of my stories are probably more extreme than the most. But I felt very, very alone. 
And I knew that I had a story to tell. I knew that my words could help people. And I'd always enjoyed writing before. Like when I was traveling, I used to write emails home and I knew how to make people laugh by structuring sentences in a certain way. And any family gathering we ever had, any Christmas party or somebody leaving or going to uni or whatever, I always used to write a poem. And I know you write a lot of poems as well. I was like the go-to is like, Vic, go, go and write one of your f- funny poems for Nan's birthday or something. So I knew I could make people laugh through the way that I wrote. And I thought, gosh, what a good way to to tell this story, if I can, would be to make people laugh and it'd be poignant at the same time. So that's why I sat down and started writing it. I thought, well, if this book can help someone that's like me, if I'm like me, there's going to be somebody else out there in this world somewhere that has a similar story. So I'm going to write down what I'm feeling and what I'm going through each day. It wasn't a book at the start. It was just a diary of how I was feeling and what I was facing socially and, you know, romantically and all of these other things, all these other aspects that were going on. I was going to write them down so that I had a log of what was happening to me so that perhaps one day I could share it whether that was on a podcast in a blog or just for my own you know my own self my just for my own ego almost Mm. to go actually what I did was right so that I could look back on it and go I felt like that that day this is why I'm sober and often on this podcast we say to people write it down write down how you're feeling And we say that because that's exactly what I did. And it showed my progress each day. If I was feeling like I had a craving or I wanted to drink or it was someone's 40th or, you know, all the pressure was on to drink, I could look at my words and go, oh, yeah, this is why I'm doing it. This is my reason why. And this is why I keep on this road. That explains why it's so brutally honest. You wrote the book for yourself, not for anyone else specifically. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's got to be brutally honest. I can tell these stories in this book, Hamish, because that person, that girl that I that I've written about in that book is not who I am now. That is not the person that that represents me. That was a girl that was under the influence of a heavily potent drug. And I can tell those stories because that is not me. I literally feel like it's two separate people. I feel like there's the drunk me and there's the sober me. Therefore, it makes it okay. It's like me writing about someone I don't know because Mm -hmm. that person was lost and out of control and now I'm not lost and out of control. It feels like, well, I don't have any regrets because that person was an unhappy person that I don't know. And now I know myself, I can separate myself from these two people. I would argue that you started writing this book long before you went sober through your diaries, which I've been lucky enough to read. Yeah. How many stories or how many bits from those diaries do you go back and find and go, that's good for the book? Those diaries were an incredible resource, especially for dates and stuff, because I had no idea. I couldn't remember what had gone on when and what boyfriends I had and what country I was in. So I've got probably six diaries. Hamish has seen Mm. them. We get them out of the live shows, don't we? And we compare them. My diaries are stuffed full of information and they're all drinking stories it's one page drinking one page hungover one page drinking yeah. and I'm literally in there writing lists about when I'm hungover like I've got to stop drinking I need to get better I don't like myself all of these other things and the next page it's like oh, I'm drunk again yeah and these were during your traveling years wasn't it so yeah mostly in your 20s 30s in my early 20s okay. there are some diaries from my teen years there are even some from when I was eight years old I was always a writer I was always loved logging things I always say I'm like a hoarder of memories and I do it now online and in different ways but then I did it in writing and I've always done it I've always enjoyed writing what I was thinking it always makes things more clear when you can read them back 
I think that's quite evident in the book. I remember at one point you describe the mark that your mum's stiletto leaves in the carpet. I was like, the detail that you've remembered. That was when you were a kid. Like, what? You've got the most extraordinary memory for someone that overdrank for 30 years. Well, what's incredible is I didn't know that when you sit down to write a book, especially about your own life, is that you are forced into really thinking deeply about a situation. Mm. So when I wrote that chapter about watching my mum get ready for a night out, I sat there and I closed my eyes and I thought, what was it like? What happened when my mum was getting ready to go out? She did her hair, she did her makeup, there was noises. If you, It's like regressing into a situation and forcing yourself to remember every single thing about it. And I think it's actually possible. I didn't know that that's what mm. I was doing when I was sitting there with my eyes closed. I just thought, I was, oh, can I remember this? Can I remember that? But you're almost like regressing into your sort of childlike self and going, what can I really remember about my mum back in the day? And it's incredible what comes up. It's actually interesting to me the link in your life between books and alcohol. I don't even know if this is a link that you've made, Mm. but in the book you write, throughout my extensive travels, when I didn't have my head stuck in a good book, I was drinking. So without trying to sound too corny, it sounds as if reading kept you from drinking during your travelling days, because no one picks up a book when they're pissed, right? That's something that you do sober. And writing has then become a key tool in your sobriety ever since. So what I want to ask is how has reading Quitlit and immersing yourself in books about sobriety helped you get and stay sober? Well, I think I just realised the first book I ever read was Sober Curious by Ruby Warrington, and that opened a door for me. It was like there's another world out there that I, I knew nothing about. And since then, since I read that book, it's led me to another book like Alcohol Explained and then to another book, which was The Unexpected Joy of Sobriety, I think it's called. There's so many books and one book leads to another. And I just love hearing the stories of others. I think it's partly because I'm nosy and I'm just interested, but also I learn so much. And as you know, like sobriety is all about learning. Like we never stop learning. There's always something more to know about this topic, isn't there? And about wealth and self-help and all of these other topics that sort of run alongside sobriety. I've always enjoyed reading. It's been like my go-to if I was ever stressed or ever alone. When I was traveling, I was alone a lot. Mm. So keep Keeping my head, you know, in a book was a good way to pass the time because I travelled the world on my own for 10 years, which is, you know, there's a lot of chapters in there about my travels. And when I was alone, books for me have always felt like friends. Like, yeah, you know, when you're in a library, like I feel no stress in a library. We're in a library now and had a really stressful time <laughs> with our sound and our mics this morning. But like when I'm surrounded by books, I feel like a sense of serenity. For some reason, I don't know what it is. I just feel like there's stories within reach. And I always say to my kids, you know, just going to the library and pick a book. You can learn anything. You can find out about anything. And I do find it incredible that there's all these libraries and bookshops all over the world and you can just pull something off a shelf and find out something you never knew before. Mm. I just find books fascinating. Well, I always said that I knew that we would get on when I first saw your bookshelf. Yeah. I didn't know you and I saw your bookshelf and I was like, yep, we're going to be friends. A lot <laughs> of these titles I would also buy. There are a lot of comedic books, aren't there's there? There's a lot of like, yeah, books. There's a lot of comedy books. Now, yeah. the book begins with a comment being made to you as a child about having big eyes. Yeah. It seems to be your first memory of feeling a bit off or a bit different to everyone else. And this theme comes up again later in the book during your first taste of alcohol. You write, the flavour was rank, but that was irrelevant. I was after accolades, a story and a few high fives. Drinking made me part of something. 
accepted. I gritted my teeth, shook my head and got on with it. A lot of us drinks cover up some kind of insecurity. And sadly, it seems as if you were hyper aware of these, even from a young age. And becoming Vic the drinker seemed to solve whatever those insecurities were for you. Mm. So who was that 11-year-old Vic trying alcohol for the first time? I think it was someone who had wanted to be like her family. I grew up in a family that was, you know, a binge drinking family, if we're going to be honest, you know. That my parents had parties every weekend. There was never any sort of commiserating or sad drinking or alone drinking. It was just this really joyful place to be where my parents had parties. I think in the book I describe our house on a dark street was the glittering disco ball. Mm. There was always something going on. And I think I grew up wanting to be that. So I don't know whether I really had a choice. I just knew that alcohol was going to be like pimping my personality almost. I knew that I was confident already and that I could, you know, make people laugh. But I think topping up my personality with alcohol I thought it made me kind of extra and that people were going to like me more. Funnily enough, we're talking about this today because I think I've had a bit of a revelation about this this week. I always thought that it was to make me more confident. And I'm starting to realise now that the longer that I'm sober, I think I was confident as a kid. Mm. And I think perhaps I used alcohol because I was so confident in myself I think perhaps I used it to dumb myself down a bit now. It's a bit of a change in how I how I feel that I used alcohol since I've been sober for six years. So it's interesting. I think you can either use it to dumb yourself down or to hype yourself up. But generally, whatever the reason, it's always to make people like you more or to feel like you wanting to fit in. And I was never into sex, really. I wasn't really into boys. I liked doing sport. And I just felt that if I drank, I would have a better relationship with people. And that if I had this one thing that I could do really, really well, then people would always be drawn to me and always like me. So that's what I, I just chose that as like my job. My job here is to make people happy by getting them drunk and getting me drunk. So it was kind of my career. Why would you want to dumb yourself down? I don't know why I would have wanted to. I just felt like maybe I was too much for people or that I was too happy or my family were too joyful and it was just too much for people. So I wonder now just because just because I realise I'm confident without alcohol. So I, I, I question my reasons for using it now. I want to talk about friendships because friendship was a complex thing for you back then, as I'm sure it is for many teenage girls in particular. You're right quite heartbreakingly about your two best mates, right? Who one day ditched you, you were 14 years old and they never spoke to you again for no obvious reason. And that single moment seemed to leave a lasting impression on you, which would end up feeding into your drinking habits. You wrote that alcohol offered you something you wanted more than anything, acceptance. If I do this well, I will always have friends. So what gave you the impression that drinking equated to always having friends or perhaps more poignantly that not drinking would render you mateless? Because I think there's a theme that runs through the book is like never being enough. I never thought that I was enough. I felt like I needed to be to be like I have some magic in me. I perhaps thought I wasn't good enough at certain things like academically or sport or any of these things at school. Or perhaps I wasn't funny enough. And 
my parents had taught me to be the host with the most and I thought that involved alcohol. I thought you had to drink. I never, ever questioned drinking. I never thought, should I or shouldn't I? I just thought this is something I must do to keep in line with the family tradition (laughs) and to keep everybody happy. I thought if I didn't drink, I would be, you know, adopted out or something. So I never felt like I really had a choice around it. Yeah, it's really an, an interesting question, Hamish, because... It, it makes it sound like I ever I questioned it and I chose it, which I didn't. Yeah. I never, ever made a choice. It was just something that I saw. My little child brain just said, oh, they drink. That must be fun. Oh, that person's having a glass of wine. That's what people do. It's like being in a tribe and following the tribe. I never, ever had a choice. Your parents come across great in the book. They are loving. They're caring. They're there for you during your toughest times. They also know how to throw a party. And that seemed to be your first memory of alcohol like you've spoken about. Was their mates dancing in your house and falling out over into the garden after a sort of big night of drinking? Your mum was one of the first pe- people to read it. What was her reaction? That was awkward, was I have it? to say. <laughs> yeah, Handing that script, it was like this big, it, it doesn't look like it does now, like this beautiful book. It looked like this big pile of papers. And I thought, yeah. if someone's got to read it, it's got to be my mum. Was she first. the first person? She was the first okay. person, yeah. Because there's a bit about them. There has to be, because mm-hmm. it's my life and they're my parents. And there's a bit in the book where we talk about blame towards the end, you know, when I go to therapy and we have to say, look, why am I like this? That's what you have to do when you get sober. You have to go, why am I like this? And of course, that that came up. My parents partying, you know, watching them, my child brain absorbing everything they were doing, that had to come up. But of course, I realised that blame was futile and that blaming the people I loved was never going to get me anywhere. In fact, it would probably just internalise my anger and make me pissed off and make me fall out with the people I love, which I never, ever wanted to do. And also, you can spend your lives blaming other mm. people for your own behaviour. It actually is stunting. It never is going to get you anywhere. So I had to say to my mum when I handed it over, look, there's a lot of stuff in there that you don't know about. Mm -hmm. You know, promiscuity, drug taking, all of that stuff is in there. But you're going to find out about it. If this ever gets published, there was no publishing deal at this point. I just thought I want my mum. It's going to make me cry now because she sent me a beautiful text the day that she read it. And it just said, oh, God, you're going to make me cry. It just said, we're so proud of you. That's all it said. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why I get emotional, but... You know, I'd never want them to feel to feel that anything was their fault. It wasn't their fault, you know. And I still feel sort of guilty that I've had to write about them in this way. But it's just my story and it's how, you know, it's how our lives were. And my parents were never problem drinkers. They're happy drinkers and it's just what they did. They grew up in the 80s where, you know, yuppies and if you had money, you drank and you threw a party. It wasn't their fault that I absorbed all of that and it wasn't their fault that I took it much further than they ever did. That was totally my responsibility. And stuff hadn't happened to them like it happened to me. They didn't have trauma. I had some level of trauma growing up, which was nothing to do with them, which is why I used alcohol in a very, very different way to them which which is actually why we don't have why we have a very different relationship with it they're all right with it I'm not Mm. and in the book I had to say look mum there is some stuff in there about you and about our family and I didn't really say sorry I'm not going to say sorry because I'm not sorry but it what probably was confronting but they are extremely proud of everything I do but my dad hasn't read it. <laughs> well, that was my next question. So yeah. mum was the first person to read it. Dad is never going to be allowed to read it. No. 
As I'm reading it, and this is just because I'm odd, I was wondering which specific passages okay. might be the cause I can of your tell you. dad. Not, well, I think I've got it. Okay, you've got one. Okay. It'd be interesting to know if my answer is the same as yours. Yeah. Okay, obviously, oh, God, I know which one it is. There are some sexual escapades. There's, of course, the truth behind how you went from being someone that could high five to someone that could only high four and a half. <laughs> but then I thought, actually, what it is, yeah. it's this description of a handsome male nurse showering you after the birth of your first child. Go on. He scrubbed blood from my leaky vagina with gusto for much longer than it took to clean a grimy oven, but with the same vigour. I stood there, legs apart, trying to ease my humiliation by repeating in my head, he does this every day. <laughs> so that is one of them. Is it? Yeah. What was your thought when Mine I said that? Mine was when I lost my virginity and I said, I'm sitting on the toilet and my vagina felt like a hot jacket potato yes. and I sit there cupping the spud. Yes. Every time I think nice of cupping the spud. <laughs> I think you've it's ruined quality stuff, guys. <laughs> you've ruined potatoes for yeah. all of us. Yeah, I think the humour in the book, like funnily enough, when John read it, he sat next to me in bed. He didn't mm. read it until quite recently. Yeah. Every five minutes I'd turn to him and go, is it too crude? Is it too crude? Like, oh my God, what have I said? Should I take that bit out? Should I take that bit out? He was like, you've just got to leave it. Yeah. Because the crudeness is what weighs up the point, yeah, the poignant parts yeah. and it kind of levels it all out. So mm -hmm. you go on a bit of a journey with it. But at the same time, there are some bits, because I thought I was writing it for myself, I wrote things that made me laugh yeah. and for some people they are not going to find those funny they're just going to think oh my god she is so sick in the head I don't know I think those are funny whoever you are okay good I'm you, confident Hamish. of that I'm bound to get a few emails going I There'll cannot be believe you described just... your vagina as a stud <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great email to receive yeah. how do you feel about your kids reading it one day I feel very awkward about that mm. I wonder when they'll read it what, what age do you reckon when I first thought about it I thought is it going to be like when the Harry Potter came out, like yeah. the Harry Potter books, and kids would be like racing to read it and then holding it over their friends. But I read number two and you haven't. Yeah. I feel like that's what's going to happen with your family. Like George is going to read it first. Yeah. He's now 11. He'll leave home and he'll straight be, afterwards. I don't know when he can start. I don't know. 14, maybe? No. Too early? 18? 18, 18, 18, yeah. If you say 18, he's going to read it when he's 16, right? Oh, you, God, it's no. like drinking. No one sticks to waiting till the legal age to start drinking. I think I might ban them forever, quite honestly. That now might be we're easier. Talking, I think that's going to be easier. Otherwise, George reads it and he holds it over the other two until yeah. Nelly's 18 and then... Yeah, he's going to hold it over me because he's going to say, well, mum, if you did cocaine, that means I could yeah. do cocaine. Like, it's not going to work because I think... When we did episodes about communicating with your teenager about drugs and alcohol yeah. before, we always said, keep the lines of communication open, but stop at a certain point. We were like, you can tell yeah. them certain things like, oh, mummy tried a cigarette once and she didn't like it, so mm -hmm. she never had it again, which is what I do now. But this is going to be way too much, isn't it, for their childlike brains? Yeah. That's just to keep it under lock and key. I think they're going to keep it under lock and key. Yeah. They cannot read it. Yeah. <laughs> Including my dad. My dad, I occasionally read a chapter out to him, mm -hmm. one that's clean. And I skip a few bits. And he's like, oh, that's very lovely, Victoria. Well done. And I read the whole funny. thing. Yes. It's all some really serious chapters with nothing funny going Honestly, on. Honestly, my dad has the dirtiest humour I've ever met in my I, life. That's where I get it from. That's so where I you don't get know. it from. So yeah. I wonder if you read it and be proud of like, oh, that's the sort of joke that I would have cracked. I don't know whether he can be proud about his daughter okay. pulling over diapers. <laughs> <laughs> what others think of you has always seemed to hold more importance over you than perhaps you, you'd like it to. Yeah. There's one comment that a stranger made to you at uni and saying, I've heard about you, you're the one that's always drunk and off your trolley on drugs, which caused you to drop out of uni altogether. Yep. Has sobriety helped you overcome that or is that something that you're still battling with today? That is something. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So Vic, do you think you might have ADHD? Well, listeners keep emailing me telling me that they think I do, so probably. Mind you, listeners also email us saying we talk too much about your mum's feet. So what do they know? Yeah, fair enough. I honestly had no idea about the connection between overdrinking and ADHD until we started this podcast. About 40% of people that have had any sort of drinking issues also apparently have ADHD. Whenever we chat to ex-drinkers, this comes up more than you'd believe. If you have ADHD or suspect you might or just want to learn about this link, then we would encourage you to check out the I Have ADHD podcast. It's the place where adults with ADHD find research-based information, validation and tons of support. This is the best way to feel less alone and hear some of the answers to the questions you've been sitting with for too long. You'll hear detailed descriptions of what it means to have ADHD and enjoy interviews with the foremost experts in the industry so that you don't have to read those ADHD books that are collecting dust on your shelf. Yeah. Listen to the I Have ADHD podcast and learn how ADHD affects every aspect of your life, from the boardroom to the bedroom. In the podcast, you'll also hear about their ADHD coaching programme, which is called Focused. Focused is made up of three pillars, courses, coaching and community. It is designed to help you build your own self-improvement program and is perfect for the ADHD brain. And you can get $50 off the course just by using the code SOBER, S-O-B-E-R. So if you're tired of feeling stuck and don't know where to start, listen to the I Have ADHD podcast. I think that I will always battle with, <laughs> I think. I think as a people pleaser, drinking, sobriety, all of it, you're confronted every day Especially with what we do. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's like we've already mentioned the fact you're going to get emails when this comes out. Totally. We already get emails or Instagram yeah. messages, 95% of which are nice and 5% of which are just not nice or just confusing. Yeah. I would say, Hamish, you're an inspiration to me in this realm because you go into everything with this positive frame of mind. You step into everything thinking, well, this is going to be a learning experience for me. So I'm happy to go in no matter what the result is. So you are a huge influence on me on this journey to try and accept myself and step into myself a little bit more. For me, it's a journey. I know we hate that word and it's (laughs) cheesy as fuck, but like, This is a long extended journey. You don't just get sober and everything's okay and go, oh my God, I love myself now. And also I want to stay humble. I don't want to be a wanker. There has to be a level of, with everybody, a level of of whether they like themselves all the time or not. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you'd just be arrogant. So I'm very conscious of that. I'm conscious of being relatable and people liking me, which it doesn't come from a horrible place all the time. But there's definitely some points like when we get horrible emails and stuff or when I'll probably get negative reactions about the books. There's going to be critics out there who are going to hate my book. Mm -hmm. And I will admit to you now I'm going to find that hard. But my plan is not to go into some sort of mental spiral. I understand I can't keep everybody happy all 
all the time. But I do find it like a little dagger to my chest yeah. every time someone says something horrible. I did see a, a Instagram reel about people dealing with rejection who are ADHD the other day, and I just sat there and went, "Oh my god, that is me." So there is a, probably a chance I do have ADHD. What were they doing? It was like a balloon and how someone reacts to rejection. It was like if it's ADHD person, the balloon is popped and you just go into this kind of like, "Oh my god, everybody hates me." Yeah, instantly yeah. whereas if you're not ADHD it's just a little bit of air comes out of the balloon each time so it was a really good analogy and I was like I'm definitely the ADHD yeah. version of that and every test I do I do come up positive so yeah I and my brain collapses sometimes as, as you know Hamish yeah. that's also a, a sign but <laughs> anyway a good comment that Sarah Milligan made mm. that has always stuck with me when she says good gig or bad gig come midnight that night I'm back to neutral Okay, so yes. I don't let myself carry and I had the best gig last night because that will affect my gig the next night. Yeah. If it's a terrible gig, come midnight, fuck it. Because I do, if I have a good gig, sometimes I'll stay up till midnight celebrating. Yeah. I, I really enjoy it. But that's the rule she tries to have. And yeah, that makes, it makes sense. But it's obviously easier said than done, that. No, it's quite grounding that though, just yeah. thinking that. Like you always come back to this sort of content line. You know, we talk about alcohol being the wiggly line and sobriety being the content line. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely on the content line, but that doesn't mean to say I'm perfect. I still struggle like everyone else. Of course I want everybody to like me. But now that we're doing this, it's just more clear when they don't. Because <laughs> they send you messages saying, I hate you, you're a wanker. So it's hard to avoid those. At least when it's in public, people can just walk away and you go, okay, that person doesn't like me. Yeah. But here they write it down. <laughs> they write it in black and white and email it to us. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, sorry about that. Yeah. And I do get, I do get hurt. But as I said, I'm working on it. In reading the book, I found myself trying to pinpoint at what point your drinking became a problem. So I think a lot in the early stages, oh yeah, everyone was like that. Everyone was like that. I'm going, okay, when would I stop saying everyone was like that when I'm reading the book about your drinking? And feel free to disagree, but I think it's the point when you began lying to your friends and John about it. This was at the point where you were a parent and you write, recently I've been hiding how much I drank. I told John I stayed out because my friends made me and that I only had a few. I kept secret the fact that I went to an after party and danced on a speaker. I didn't think I needed to worry him. I'm not an alcoholic. And it was at this point that you were doing online, are you an alcoholic tests? And all of them were saying, Yes, you are an alcoholic. Yes, you have ADHD, similar. (laughs) Um, If you could pin it to one particular point, when did you start to worry about the fact that your drinking got out of hand? Or when did it stop being fun and just, oh, just Vic Vic, Vic being the drinker? I think the first time you mentioned at university that girl came up to yeah. me and said you're the one that's you know off your head on drugs and off your trolley all the time. I think that was a point where I kind of went, oh, maybe I do do a little bit more than everybody else. Mm-hmm. But I just thought that added to me at that point. I think when I had a drug overdose in Brighton, obviously that was a, you know, a big wake up call. Well, it should have been a big wake up call. I think there's a lot of points throughout my book and throughout my life where I did self-reflect for a very, very short moment, but I decided it was too hard. So I kind of cut it off and just carried on because the thought of not being who I knew, like my entire identity based around being a party girl, it was like saying, you know, flush flush yourself down the toilet, like jump off a cliff because you don't know who you are anymore if you say no to these things. So I just carried on. But I think, as you say, when I became a parent, when I was an adult, I had a consequence to my drinking for the first time ever. Before, it was just a hangover or I had to leave a town, which I did do once. A few times. Yeah, a few times, or like leave a boyfriend. They were minor consequences that could be dealt with very, very easily. I'd just move somewhere else or, you know, just, you know, have a glass of water and a 
Lucozade and a cup of paracetamol and wake up and be fine. Whereas a child, you can't run away from that. Although Mm. sometimes, you know, I still want to. (laughs) I couldn't run away from that. And it was really confronting for me to have this major, major consequence in my life. And that's when I started to really self-reflect. And that's when I tried to do better for a while, Mm. to try and moderate and to try and be this better drinker, this person like everyone else that could just go out and have one and go for a jog in the morning. I was really desperate to be that. And for many years, I tried that. Of course, I failed every time. Well, I want to talk about the way your drinking changed when you become a parent, because I think everyone can relate to that. And because particularly because, yes, there's a consequence of your drinking, but also you're going out less frequently. Like the night out is a precious, rare thing. So you can't help but go for it quite hard. You write about mummy wine culture quite well, and I want to read it back to you. You said, I needed an escape. I'd been at home for four weeks. I deserved a reward for all my hard work. Surely a few drinks wouldn't hurt. I knew I shouldn't drink and breastfeed, but honestly, by that point, I didn't give a flying pig's ass. Drinking was what I knew. It was my way out of this. Drinking was how I took part in life. The idea of feeding diluted gin to my precious angel did not worry me one bit. I never even paused to consider the impact of a hangover would have on me taking care of a newborn. All I could think of was to drink, to be myself again. Drink. Forget about this shit. Drink. You deserve this. Drink. Did you see it ramp up on becoming a parent? Did you see it sort of go into another gear? I think there was times in my life where my drinking was more severe, like Mm -hmm. when I had no responsibilities, when I was traveling, when I just was going for it and I didn't care. When I became a parent, of course, I was sober as soon as I got pregnant for that nine months period. And then I think I was probably sober for a few weeks after each birth. And I, it ramped up mentally because of the gap in between the sessions. So I was like so desperate to go out. It would be a week of me preparing mentally going, oh yes, this is going to happen. Whereas before I would have just had a drink in that Mm -hmm. time. I wouldn't have questioned it. I've gone, right, I feel like drinking, I'm going to drink. Whereas when you have a kid, I was like, I know I can't drink because I've got breast milk and I've got to do this and I've got to do these chores and I've got to go to play group and I've got all these new responsibilities now. But then that would build up. The mundane would build up. I really say the word mundane quite a lot in that book because that's what I felt. I felt like the party girl and the mum had met and there was this kind of clash. And it was like, who? what's happening here? These two people don't work very well together. So I'm going to try and do both of them and see how it works. And I did that for about four years. I tried to blend the party girl and the mum, which was a terrible combination, of course. And I think a lot of people do that because they don't know who they are anymore as a parent. It can be quite boring. So you want to jump back into who you were. You want to find a piece of you on the grubby dance floor somewhere and go, there she is, there's that girl I knew. So I was desperate to do that. And I did it probably every other weekend after having my first child. I would be good mummy during the week. I'd have all the right snacks and food and be the perfect mum. And then my my sort of drinking brain would catch up with me. It, it would re- rewire itself to the point where it's going, come on, you deserve this. You deserve a reward. What a brilliant mum you've been. And I would, it would build up over time. And then I'd be like, right, let's have a night out. And I would, I would go with good intentions because mm. I didn't want to be some wasted, lost it mum. I wanted to be that perfect drinker. Of course, that wasn't a possibility for me, but I, I kind of knew that. I just wanted to get blotto. It was never my aim to get one or two drinks in and then leave home. I knew that after one, I was out for the night, but I didn't really care. I pretended to everyone else that that was the case, but I knew I was there to get, you know, I was there last man standing for sure. 
I yeah. think there's a line in the book where you say, I'm not crazy, everyone else is just boring. Yeah. And that was something that, funny enough, when Liz read it, she related to. She goes, that the thing when you drink a lot for a long time is your tolerance for boring is minimised. Yes. So suddenly the, the new bar is, well, okay, well, on a night out, three people throw up, two people have punch-ups and someone breaks a leg. Like That's the new expectation on a night out. <laughs> so anything less than that, you're incredibly bored. Yeah. So it gets more intense every time. It gets more intense every time. Like you say, with parenting, you spend a lot of your time daydreaming yeah. about what a night out could look like and also looking back on like, God, remember all the fun we used to have when we used to party without yeah. children? But there's no training for that transition. Yeah. Like maybe I need to do a course or something about the transition from party girl to mum because you just go to the hospital one day, you're pregnant, and then you have a life to look after. Mm. But the only thing I ever looked after before was like the, the gram of Coke that I hid in my bra. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like I never looked after anything before. And then you go from like being out and being crazy to being at home and being alone and being isolated yeah. and have this life that needs you desperately. It is huge. So, of course, that what else is there to do apart from mummy wine culture? <laughs> let's numb this out. Let's get back to who we were and let's pretend that everything is okay and, and that this situation is okay. Because often it is boring. Mm -hmm. Like if you've had that life and those adventures, staying at home in a flat on your own is bloody boring. Yeah. So there's no like training or teaching for this. It is a really, really hard situation to be in. And you'd think nine months of preparation would get you ready for it. But when it happens, it is really confronting. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how parenting basically affected every part of your drinking. In the, Initially, you wrote, no matter what, this baby won't get in the way of me having fun. This baby will not change me. Then you get to the stage when you're desperate to fall pregnant as you think it's the only thing that will get you sober. And you remember, oh, I really enjoyed not drinking during that first pregnancy. Then you fall back into the trap of feeling as if you've earned a night out after the long, boring days and you're having these big nights out and then feeling awful and anxious the next day. And then finally, your kids sort of become the reason that you ended up going sober. So every facet of your drinking was affected by at some stage by becoming a parent. And I think that that's the part of the book that readers will be able to relate to the most. Your way of writing about parenting, you've said it twice during this interview of like, it's fucking boring, <laughs> which is the thing that everyone is thinking and no one says enough because oh, it's, oh, it's the best thing that's ever happened to in my life and my <laughs> children are the apples of my eye. I think that is what people will connect with you about the most. Yeah. Do you think you ever would have gone sober if you'd not become a parent? I don't think so. Really? No. I think I would have carried on. I probably would have ended up one of those people on a dialysis machine with a bottle of Jack Daniels clutched to their chest. Mm -hmm. I think that would have been me because there was no other way it was going. They were the wake-up call. They were the reason. They are the reason why I stopped and they are the reason why I will never drink again. I had to find my reason why. I had to work it all out. And, you know, if I was to look at their faces and then go out and get pissed, it doesn't work for me anymore. Like they changed my life because of that, you know, responsibility and, and having to raise a child, you can't do it with a hangover. You know what it's like. Mm. You cannot get up. And feeling like that, we talked about anxiety there. We must mention that a little bit here because that is really, there's two reasons why. I got anxiety after I became a parent because of the guilt involved in not being able to look after my children when I was hungover. I would be in a bedroom feeling like waves of fear crashing over me with a newborn crying in the next room. And it was extremely confronting. And I felt very, very guilty, very, very ashamed. And that caused me to have huge anxiety attacks every time I drank. And I just couldn't cope with it anymore. 
Although I'm thankful for that anxiety now because that led me to stop drinking, at the time you can't see out of it and you, you can't even see why it's happening. I was still trying to drink through that anxiety. Of course it was the alcohol that was causing it. But at the time I was just like, I've got to get through this because I want to learn how to be a drinker and not get anxiety. Mm. And so it's a massive combination of things that lead to now, don't they? And if I hadn't have had anxiety or had children, there is... No way that I'd be sitting here with you now. I'd probably be in a beach in Thailand, you know, with a coconut full of vodka, you know, wishing my life away. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't have ever worked. Your drinking in many ways made you the person you are today. Today you're sober, proudly so, obviously. But if you could turn back time and do it all over again, do you think you would drink differently or not drink at all? Or would you have changed anything at all? I don't have any regrets, Hamish. Yeah. I can't have because... That's who makes you who you are. My dad said the other day, I think I said to him, oh, sorry, dad, but, you know, I've released a book that's basically based on the adventures of my vagina. He was like, ha, ha, ha. But he did say at the end of the conversation that, Victoria, if if none of this had ever happened, you would not be doing what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. And that is so true. So I can't have regrets. I'm not a believer in regrets. Everything that I've done has made me who I am. I wouldn't have these stories. I wouldn't have been on these adventures if I hadn't been a massive drinker. And I wouldn't be able to help people like we do now with this mm. podcast. Like That's why we do it. We're able to do it because of what we've done. Otherwise, we'd just be smarmy idiots, wouldn't we? Well, we are smarmy yeah, idiots. Still still. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> Hypocritical. Somebody told me I was hypocritical once on a nasty email. So I can't believe you come on here. You don't know what it's like. Mm -hmm. And I thought, actually, I do know what it's like. All the struggles are different. Every struggle is relative. It doesn't matter whether, you know, you had any sort of childhood trauma or not. We can still talk about this in a way that's open and caring and sharing because everybody's been through something. Everybody's had their ups and downs and these are just mine. And I'm happy to talk about them, as I said earlier, is I am not that girl in that book anymore. So therefore I can separate it and I don't have regrets because I never had a choice. I never had a choice to be who I was always meant to be. I know that sounds a bit guru-y, but you know I like being a you bit do guru enjoy sometimes. just a little pinch yeah. of guru. I am wearing then. white robes right now and Hamish <laughs> is on the floor kneeling at yeah. me. I've got a microphone in between your feet so I can just <laughs> kiss them every now and then. Oh, stop it, Hamish. <laughs> I, at the end of the book, it sort of dawned on me that the real hero of the book is John. For fuck's sake. So surely, it is. surely I've got to be the hero of no, my book. Hamish. Even though it's kind of an autobiography, oh really, God. it's a biography about I, John. I know, I hate this. <laughs> Fucking hell. John is going to get the credit, is he, for this? It's weird that it's not his name where it's written, where yours is written on the front of the book. I think oh you, I think you dedicate God. it to him, to be fair. Oh, this is classic. This is just, I've actually written a, a, a chapter in my new book called Poor John. Yes. Yes. Is there a chapter in this one called Poor John? No, not no, yet. There should be. Yeah, there should be. So his reaction to you asking him what he really thinks about your drinking, he says, alcohol suppresses all the things I love about you. It sucks the joy and beauty from you. I'm scared. And it made me wish that anyone who was trying to give up alcohol had a John. When we spoke to Jean McCarthy, she spoke about this um, recovery... Recovery capital. Recovery capital. The idea that you can be rich and effectively your support system the day that you go you go sober. And in having John, you were effectively a millionaire. He's yeah. ended up going sober himself, which is after the time of the book. And although you've just slagged him off, I want to ask you how integral a role he played in your sobriety, but I feel you're now going to go, none. Well, it's funny, like, when you say integral role, you imagine it's somebody there, like, cheering you on and telling you what to do and, like, really, like, being this kind of pillar of support. But 
sometimes it's not that. <laughs> and he wasn't that. He just watched and he didn't judge. And that sometimes is all, that was all I needed, actually. I just needed somebody that was there going, okay, this is hurting you. And I see it's hurting you. He never told me not to drink. Mm. He never told it that my behavior was out of control. He never, ever judged me or told me what to do. He was just there to fall back on when I needed it. It's like unconditional love like you have for your children. It's like no matter how they behave, you know that even if you argue, there's always this pillar of support that stands behind you. And sometimes just that is enough throughout your life just to have someone there who you know has got your back. And that's what John has been throughout this whole process. In fact, every time I do read that chapter about John in, in that bit, I do cry every single time because really, yeah. I just remember there was all he did was hold my hand like and just go, OK, you want to go to therapy? Right, let's sort that out. There was no like nastiness or you could do this or you could do better. There was just like, OK, let, I'm willing to support you in any choice that you make. And now, of course, I get to see him in his sober mm -hmm. journey, which is just as fascinating. But I find it a little bit annoying at the same time. How easy I'm like, this it? is my thing. Like, don't <laughs> jump on my fucking train, mate. Get off. There is like an underlying love story in this because he comes up, you're at uni with him. So he comes up quite early in the book. Although the chapters jump in time, we meet John quite early. And I love the first date story. You guys meeting for lunch and you eating spaghetti. And yeah. was it spaghetti? And it would yeah, be all, yeah. all down your front. Yeah, and yeah. then going to the gig. And then he comes out to Thailand. It's a beautiful love story, yours yeah. and John's, basically what I'm trying to say. One of the things I realised in reading this book is how much you play down the moments in your life that drove you to overdrinking. You wear this sort of normal binge drinker label on your forehead yeah. and that is your identity. And I think that's bollocks okay, yeah. because you've been through everything from suicidal thoughts after taking too many E's mm -hmm. to being done for drink driving, blowing your finger off. You're in a cult. You're in an abusive relationship. You thought you'd lost your partner in the tsunami Thailand. Like mm. you've been through a lot of trauma. And I think despite that, your story is somehow anything but normal, but at the same time, incredibly relatable. Mm. I think that managing to get that tone in the book is a credit to you. So I just want to say that I'm incredibly proud of you. Don't I'm proud of the book that you've written. I'm excited to see the effect it's going to have on everyone that reads it. And really, I'm proud that we're friends oh, because you've travelled around the world and you've met thousands of people. Yes. And I think anyone that knows you and you like can feel like, wow, like, I made it through. Like, <laughs> she knows millions of people. She's chosen to be friends with me. And I think that's... Oh, you're sweet. I think that's... I think, I think it's a triumph. Oh, you got a mention in it, didn't you? I did get mentioned towards the end of Lucy. I'm a bit disappointed it wasn't dedicated to me or I didn't have a whole chapter. But, you know, you've written another book, so maybe I'll just you dominate do. I'll Actually, dominate that one. There is a chapter with you in the second book. Thank yeah. you. You're very sweet. Poor Hamish that. and John. Yeah, poor Hamish. <laughs> Those two idiots. <laughs> but no, I think whatever happens with this book, I think you should be proud of yourself because I think it's, it's awesome. Thank you. I think with anything... You do. Like, I never imagined to get to this point. Mm -hmm. In a million years did I ever imagine that I would sit here and talk to someone about a book that I'd written and it'd be yeah. in the form that it is. I thought it would just be a scribble in a diary, my story. So it's lovely that I can tell it and that other people will read it. I am nervous about it coming yeah. out today. Like, that is kind of full on because it seems like a long time coming since, you know, I started it five years ago on the day that I gave up drinking nearly six years ago. I got the book deal, as you say, it's like this huge process. Like you don't realise what happens when you write a book. I had to sit for a couple of years sending it out to people 
I sat at my computer every single day. And somebody said to me the other day, how did you do this, Vic? I said, I worked fucking hard. (laughs) I said, it's elbow grease. It's me sending my story out, telling my story on the podcast, making communities, creating content. It's me telling my story over and over again until people will eventually listen. Because I do think it's important and I do think it will help people. So... If anyone ever wants to write a book, you know, it is hard work, but then it gets to a point like today where all that hard work hopefully pays up, pays off. And honestly, I don't care whether it's really successful or not. <laughs> I've done what I came to do, which was to tell my story. And I've done that in many, many different forms on different podcasts and all sorts of ways. And I've, I've done, I've completed my task, which was to write a book about, about sobriety. <laughs> and there it is sat in front of I you. Know. I know. I yep. should also say, and this was so tempting to include a passage from this chapter, but I won't. I would buy this book purely based on the Snot and Free Cake chapter. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to say anything other than the fact Liz read it at 3am, cried with laughter, ran in, woke me up, reread it to me, cried with laughter. It's <laughs> the greatest so chapter in the book. It's got nothing to do with drinking, but it is the funniest There's bit in the book. There's nothing better than Snot and Free Cake. I know. I was showing someone the book the other day and they were like, what's that? chapter title there I said oh well the chapter titles are are interesting she said does that say labouring cow's vaginas I was like yeah yeah that's a yeah. good one that one <laughs> they're all good there's not a single dud chapter title they're all no, phenomenal they're all good and actually yeah there's an I've been looking at the one I gave to Liz actually and that's my my new signature is the penis inside yes yes she's drawn a penis with semen coming out of it she's misspelt the word second but in Vic's <laughs> original copy she misspelt the word received so <laughs> everyone spells the word received wrong it's Hamish. a difficult one to it do diff- so yeah. I think you need to improve that okay with each book signing well that you why do you take trousers off now I can do let's some do practice a live, <laughs> let's do a live right now we can get the veins the vein is where the That's quality comes I didn't know they got in. that small <laughs> you need to get your finer tipped pencil <laughs> Veins uh, and shading is where, okay. where you could improve, right. which is a nice place to end this interview, I think. It's not Shakespeare, guys. No, it's, it's not Shakespeare. That'd be my review. <laughs> a Thousand Wasted Sundays. It's not fucking Shakespeare. <laughs> if you're questioning your relationship with booze, you're struggling to moderate, or your hangovers are causing anxiety, it might be time to reach out for some support. Yeah, just talk to a mate about how you're feeling. Contact a local doctor. Find an AA or sobriety group. Fix got one. Yeah, just head to www.cuppa.community. Remember, if you're questioning yourself, it might be time to seek support. Even though this journey can be awkward, it is definitely worth it. And if you've enjoyed the Sober Awkward podcast, don't forget to review it, rate it, and share it with your mates. Do they have to share it with their mates? Yeah, of course they do. I'm not doing this for nothing, Hamish. Bloody hell. How do they share it? Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, as you probably know, my comedy memoir, A Thousand Wasted Sundays, is officially out. All my magnificent fuck-uppery in one awkward hit. If you'd like to get your hands on a copy, it's now available from all good bookstores. We always say all good bookstores, don't we? Yeah. Are, there, are there bad bookstores? There's probably ones with moody, moody what? sellers. Oh, yeah, really yeah. depressed librarian folks. Yes, yes, okay, yes, good, yes. Good. So there are probably some, but we're only storing it in the good ones. It's only made it into the goodies. <laughs> You can also get it from all good online retailers. The print version and ebook are out now, and the audiobook will be available in March. I've been writing my memoir for five years. It will make you laugh, cry, and cringe, and hopefully inspire a few people to reconsider their relationship with booze. If you love the podcast, then I think you'll love the book, even if I do say so myself. Hamish has read it. What did you think? I feel like I know a little bit too much about you now, to be honest, Vic. Look, I really loved it. It was hilarious and surprisingly moving, but I feel like I've seen you naked in a literary sense. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, that's worrying. Yeah. Yeah. From an emotional point of view, seriously, it wobbled my teeny-weeny wooden heart, Vic. Okay. (laughs) My teeny little wooden heart. His his wooden heart is broken. Anyway, so if you do manage to get your filthy mitts on a copy, please do me a favour and head to goodreads.com and give me a review. Doing that will help me get it out there to those that need a bit of sober support. So there you have it. My story, unwanted warts and all. Come and get awkward with me. Not to be too demanding or anything, but seriously, go and buy it Yeah, now. go and buy it. Go and buy it right now. Yeah, don't just tell your friends. Buy it and then buy your friends one or two. Yeah, yeah, don't give them a copy. Yeah. Buy it, yeah. And you know what? Don't be careful where you store it. If you lose it, you can always buy another yeah, five. Yeah, buy another one. Yeah. <laughs> 